Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Sarah Perry, uh, who's a writer, thinker, of many blog posts on the internet, as well as book, Every Cradle is a Grave. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So first I thought I'd ask you, you've been writing for, for many years. I think you recently retired from, from Ribbon Farm. Is that correct? As contributing editor. So I'll still write sometimes, but not not pumping out a post a month and doing yeah. other stuff. And, and, and you've been doing it for, for a few years. If you look back, what do you think are the themes that unify your, your writing or what, what binds them together? Or how, how do you sort of make sense of your collection of work? That's a good question. I wonder if there are any, like I, it would be nice. It seems like if there's a theme, it's kind of trying to understand things and I don't know, having a, an evolving set of questions, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It's, some of it just doesn't fit with each other. It's kind of just a lot of different things. I don't know. I, I feel bad for people who get famous for something because they kind of stuck <laughs> doing stuck that. One thing. I'm definitely not famous enough to be stuck doing anything. That's, that's uh, the same thing over and over again. Are, are there any identifiable phases that you, um, that relate to like, Oh, this was the phase where I was writing a lot about birth and suicide, or this was the phase yeah. where I was writing a lot about meaning. So maybe 2006 to 2010, I was learning to write. And I was blogging all the time. I was writing huge amounts, just really prolifically. And back then I was in the position of, I just have this, this basically political idea, maybe more philosophical than political, but, and it's so correct. And everybody thinks it's so weird. And I don't, I was trying to almost understand why people thought it was so weird as much as trying to prove it was right. And and how would you explain that idea? My, my joke summary is why suicide is awesome and a good hobby and bringing people into the world is wrong. So, that's that's maybe a little silly, but just that life as it is maybe isn't so good and isn't something that is worth celebrating or giving to innocent people. And while maybe we should make the most of our own lives, there's something to be said for not passing the burden of life on to other people and allowing people who feel it to be a burden to get rid of the burden if they want to in a, in a comfortable and and non-horrible way. So, so I guess that was, that was my early work. And that I feel like I, my, it kind of culminated with my book, like my, the, the publisher of my book, Nine Banded Books, that's Chip Smith. And he kind of just said, you should write a book. And then I, I gave him like a chapter a week and pretty soon it was done. And he made it, made it look really nice and made me sound smart. <laughs> now I felt like I'm just I'm not as interested in it anymore. Like I, I still think it's morally, right or true or whatever but i'm just it seems like anonymalism is kind of having a moment right now like everybody's talking about it i'm just so bored of it i don't want to hear anything <laughs> about it but it kind of so vincat has this thing i don't know if i can explain it clearly that beginning writers are they tend to be political at first and they work through their politics as a way to kind of you almost work through your politics as a form of therapy and then once you're done working through your politics you can maybe say something or investigate something. And I feel like that's kind of what happened to me. That once I worked through the real serious 
you know, this is really true. And I really believe this. Now I can be a little more loose and not attached to things and treat ideas as maybe it's true. Maybe it's just a weird idea. We can think about it. What was the phase that followed that? Would you say? Ruben farm, I guess. So that's kind of, I've kind of been in that phase for a while. Um, yeah, I started out doing writing about ritual and at that time, it seemed like the, the image of ritual was just it's this irrational thing. doesn't make any sense. It's something that almost a synonym for, for irrational, just something that's, that's goofy. And, and I wanted to know, like, what, what is the rationality underlying it? Like, why, do, why are rituals so universal if it really is just this silly, time-wasting thing? And, yeah, trying to figure out the point of it and also just kind of noticing that a lot of rituals seem really fun and kind of feel good. So. What's the, I don't know, the benefit to, to having these? Uh, if they're dying, how do you make more of them? Should you try to preserve old ones? Or why, why are the new ones so cringy? <laughs> like, why, did, why are they so embarrassing? So that was what I started out doing. And then it was kind of whatever I would be interested in that month. Yeah. L- let's get, in, get into rituals and let, let's get into those questions specifically. Why are new ones so cringy? Are the old ones worth preserving? And how do we make more of them? I think the, the reasons the new ones tend to be cringy is it's a hard art form. And, and I think it is an art form. And it's a kind of a group art form where everybody participates in, in creating this, this experience. And we don't have, like with, with the art forms that are really alive, they tend to have kind of a tradition and a community of people who are contributing to it and, all kind of doing different experiments and showing off to each other, which I think is a good thing. And there's just less of that with ritual. I think there's, there's fewer people and fewer hours going into trying to, <laughs> trying to do that. So that's part of it. There also is just a, a benefit that old rituals get. If it's, if it's normal, everybody does this, you can kind of suspend your disbelief and cringiness. <laughs> it's kind of, well, this is, and plus it's the fact that the old ones by kind of by their nature have been, whittled down to the best ones, the ones that kind of work. They have they have the benefit of age, they seem more serious, and also they legitimately have been whittled down to the good ones. So and, and when we say work, what what functional purpose are, are they serving? A lot. I think there's a lot of functional purposes. There you could think of it in economic terms that they're a boost to cooperation. They're a costly signal that everyone can see that we're all part of the same community cooperating. We have extra energy to spare to cooperate together. Um, you can look at it kind of psychologically, emotionally. Uh, they create different kinds of experiences. They're not all the same, but terrifying experience or an ecstatic experience, being together with other people in some way, whether it's intimate or huge crowds, different different feelings those produce. And the the word ritual, I'm not even sure about anywhere because it seems like it's a it's a thing that people tend to call something when they don't understand the purpose of it. So once you understand the purpose of it, it doesn't seem like a ritual. You'll often hear when people are talking about like prehistory and there's like a bowl or some weird object that I don't understand, they'll be like, well, maybe it was a ritual purpose. So that doesn't, I don't think that's really answering the question. <laughs> I think ritual is a word for a behavior that we don't understand, especially a group behavior that we don't understand. So what's the point of ritual? We've already made this category that actually it blends into just reality. I think ritual is kind of just like a part of, of normal reality and often certain exciting kinds of rituals are, are set apart from reality. So they're, they're 
extra sacred. They're on a different plane. They're maybe even involved psychedelic substances or something like that. But I think it's kind of a continuum. It's not just like, well, this is a ritual. You kind of know it when you see it, but it's more of a continuum. Yeah. I guess what is the overlap and difference between like ritual and then like norms or te- in economic terms, I guess, templates mm-hmm. uh, that are fungible in some sense? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people who who are good at seeing the world as alien, which are the people whose perspectives I enjoy, can kind of look around them and see people doing rituals. Like, and and that, again, that kind of means like people doing behaviors where the outcome isn't clearly related to the behavior. Um, and a lot of them are just ordinary life. Like people will do, I still, if I spill the salt, I throw some over my shoulder because my grandmother taught me to do that. I just do it. I think there's a lot of things like that, that that's kind of, kind of obviously a ritual, but there are a lot of things that. Yeah. That knock it, on wood. Yeah. Can, yeah. can we give examples of other rituals that have, you know, been curious to you or, or been interesting or we may underappreciate? One I got really into was this book from 1911. This guy basically wandered around Ireland and a little bit around kind of the rest of what's now the UK, asking old people what they knew about fairies. And, and it's, it's all just like people's, old people's recollections of the fairy religion, the sort of what behaviors you do. And they have special ways of referring to them. There are certain things you might do or not do, behaviors you might avoid. And when you, like, you don't necessarily refer to them as fairies. You might call them those people or them people, <laughs> the, the good folk, something like that. And, and I was reading this and I was starting to get into it. And my, uh, my favorite blue dish scrubber disappeared. And I was like, oh, it's a fairies. <laughs> but it just being in that mindset made that available as an explanation. Like, oh, stupid fairies. You've written a little bit about gift giving. Can you talk about? <laughs> What would, would how ritual relates to gift giving, or how what intrigues you about gift giving? Yeah, gift giving. I think of mostly in economic terms. Although there's some really neat writers who are outside of economics who write about it, like Lewis Hyde, the gift. Mm-hmm. So he's more of a more from like poetry and art history type stuff rather than economics. But so what is what is gift giving? One one line of thinking I like about gifts is the connection of gifts and the history of money. There's kind of an idea that, well, money is a relatively recent invention. And before that, people just bartered. And there's been a lot of pushback against that idea that people ever bartered. That it seems like the origin of money, some kind of scarce tradable stuff, like usually early money would be shells usually that were scarce in the area where they were used as money. And often they would be in these sort of chains where people could maybe, different tribes could could trade, especially they could specialize in some particular form of protein. And then when it was the season for that, they, you know, had tons of it. They could maybe trade. And then later when their source of protein was, was running low, they could use the sort of proto money, the sort of gift situation to trade with the other groups. So kind of this, uh, like a scaffolding for people to basically have a larger civilization, to have a larger set of like i guess i guess the one word for it is just specialization like division of labor like not everybody has to hunt every single thing you can kind of have one group that does each thing and then so that that seems really similar to me to industrialized life like that's just (laughs) it's it's so deep in human history that 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 happens so and then gifts you could think of in economic terms as basically the, another word for reciprocal altruism, so basically trade, and that goes all the way 
way lower than humans on the on the phylogenetic ladder. So bats, vampire bats, maybe do do feeding of other vampire bats, especially if they fed them before. So you have more of a kind of a trade situation. And if you have something like money, if you have particular shells or beads or baskets or whatever it is that there's not just plenty of them, they take either uh, a trip to somewhere far away or they take a lot of person hours to make or uh, there's just not very many of them. You're lucky if you ever if you ever find some of them. Something like that makes it hard to cheat. So it makes the whole the whole ecosystem that's trading their proteins or whatever to kind of to kind of be able to to function without everybody's natural desire to get ahead, getting in the way of that. It kind of points your desire to get ahead in the direction of the future of the tribe and other tribes too. And so, so if you were to if someone asked you, hey, what do people you know, underappreciate or misunderstand about how rituals work, would you first say, hey, people don't even appreciate that rituals serve a bunch of important functions and it's not just, I don't know, people's position or something? Or or how, how would you respond to what people misunderstand about how, how rituals work? I'm trying to imagine who would who would say that. One line you hear, one or one group that you sometimes hear that coming from is like professional atheists. So the religion's yes. evil or religion's horrible. And I am, I am an atheist, but I don't think religion's horrible. And I, I think it's silly to think that it's just purely like a mimetic hijacking, that this meme just parasitizes us and does us no good. And I think that's a kind of a silly way to think of it, that if it really did us no good, the, the world might look a lot different. I think if it really did us no good, then like the, the best off places would be places with no religion. And I don't think that's the case. <laughs> Some of the best off societies have a high rate of religious participation. So probably, probably not the case that people and people whose ideas I respect otherwise, uh, but who say that, you know, religion is just a virus that has no particular point. I think that's naive. Are there, um, many rituals, original rituals coming out of the atheist community or rationalist community or scientific? Yeah, there's some. They'll do like solstice rituals and. One that has been kind of, po- not specifically among rationalists, but one that I think is promising and neat um, that's become popular recently. You've heard of circling. Yeah. So I think that one's kind yeah. of cool. It's fun. Can you explain it to, to the audience? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not an expert in it. I've participated a few times, but it's a, it's almost a group meditation, but with some amount of talking, you kind of sit in a circle. Obviously there are different formats. It could be off focused on one person or it could be kind of everybody equally focused on the group. And people are allowed to talk, but there are some limitations. So the limitations often have to do with, you know, totally, totally misrepresent circling, but a particular focus, like talking about your particular sense impression, noticing how you feel. So that in that way, it's similar to mindfulness meditation, not so much like telling stories, giving justifications, but more of a focus on, on immediate awareness. For me, I can't even remember the rules. <laughs> so, but for me, the, the experience was immediately psychoactive. Um, just sitting in the circle, having this intense group focus. Um, and I just dropped into a totally different mental state almost instantly. Not everyone has that. My husband didn't have anything like that. But I think that's true for a lot of rituals. Different people get different things out of them. Yeah. You know, one broad thing I've been thinking about, or there's been, culture has been thinking about is how we've collectively gotten a lot richer as a society and yet sort of our community bonds aren't that strong, you know, blowing alone is this big, you know, popular text. 
that, mm-hmm. uh, and there's been a lot since about that. And one saying I heard someone say something along the lines of, um, you know, we've been treating sort of the way we handle economic transactions. We've been treating our family and intimate relationships the way we've handled economic transactions and that mm-hmm. it calls for sort of greater, uh, I guess, compartmentalization of different modes. And it, it, it was one line of like, you know, in my family, I'm a communist in my, mm-hmm. uh, you know, city, a Democrat in my country mm-hmm. or libertarian or something. Mm-hmm. And, and then he had a follow up saying, which was, hey, get your, you know, market thinking out of my tribes and your tribal thinking out of my markets. I'm starting to see awareness that different regimes work for different scales. Yeah. I'm curious what you make of, of that generally. Uh, and then also, because I, I see you somewhat trying, like we have a lot of knowledge uh, collectively about, you know, what makes for good markets and, and how to think that way. I, I see you as trying to not quantify necessarily, but provide like the science of like when you, when you write about meaning or ritual or, you know, uh, like some more nuance to how we can be more effectively tribal with each other or mm-hmm. is that, is that fair or how, how do you, how's um, I don't think I know anything about it. Like I don't, <laughs> I think if anything, I know less about it than the average person. I'm less understanding of people and tribes and stuff like that. So I'm kind of coming out to it as an outsider almost. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe, maybe that is why I have anything to say. Cause it's not just normal to me. I don't, I don't necessarily naturally see how it works, but uh, that's, it's true for a lot of philosophy people that whatever they're like naturally really bad at, that's what they want to focus on. So. Yeah, no, totally. And it's valuable respect. Like I can't uh, shoot a basketball like LeBron James, yeah. like, but <laughs> I've thought a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, maybe I can describe it better or, or from a different perspective. So again, to that end, well, I'm just curious if you have any additional thoughts on the scale question or idea and then to, yeah, I guess we can get into some of the, mm-hmm. the meaning stuff. One of the scale things has to do with, and you mentioned Kevin Simler wanted you to focus me on the traditionalism thing. So one thing you said is just our society is so much richer now. And yeah, I wouldn't want to live at some other time. It's ridiculous. Even in the 1970s, which I don't really remember, but allegedly lived through a couple of years of, <laughs> everything was a lot different. And I think people have a lot of problems now, but it's, it's hard to remember how poor everybody used to be. And I grew up, my parents are kind of, you know, back to the land movement, like growing all their own food and raising animals and living out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and it's interesting. I don't ever want to do that. I don't, I don't think most people would want the subsistence farming life. And that's what human life was until very recently. But the big thing about the past is they have really good aesthetics and it, given that they're so poor, how do they have such good aesthetics? And this has been like the mystery that I've been banging my head against for, uh, I don't know, years. I might understand a little bit about it, but yeah, there's, there's, there's almost a trade off that it, it was so natural for them to create beautiful things. Um, and now it's so not. And part of that has to do with our economic system and our scale that because things are made cheaply very far away or very, very similar to each other, kind of stamped out of something, they're not exactly fit to every person's little specific life. So it's kind of one size fits all. And the materials that are conducive for industrial production are mostly like plastic and stuff like that, which doesn't tend to be beautiful. It's hard to imagine something beautiful that's made of plastic. Probably there exists something, but so that's that's part of it. If you look at housing construction, it's 
I don't know, horrible stucco and drywall and <laughs> press board and stuff like that. It's not not something that will look beautiful when it's a ruin and not something that, that stays beautiful very long. And then there's a sort of clean aesthetic that I think has been the dominant aesthetic for at least, I don't know, maybe since the mid-century, maybe since the 50s. Um, and the idea of clean is everything's kind of, you know, simple lines and white walls and not just architecture kind of objects too. And I think that's almost, it seems the the word clean has good associations, but I, I have very bad associations with that kind of, of uh, aesthetic that it used to be just really expensive to make a completely self-similar surface or things that all look the same, perfectly straight lines. Like that was a hard thing to do. Now that's the easiest thing in the world and everything looks terrible. <laughs> so things like if you look at a, a hand hewn wood surface, it looks a lot more alive and a lot different from a sawn wood surface that was like sawn in a sawmill. It kind of undulates a little bit. You can see more of like the, the wood itself comes through rather than just being this raw material to make a, a board or something. And back when that was economically feasible, back when the best way to make a board was to hew it with a with an axe, everything was was beautiful because it was made of that. And now it's not really economically feasible in terms of labor. It's much easier just to make things out of industrially produced materials. And to I don't know the solution to that. It's something that that has interested me for a long time. Yeah, and it seems. I mean, I'll, I'll take it a little bit further. It seems that we are somewhat on the dawn of this like mass customization, like yeah. the you know industrial scale with like seeing what you like on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And mm-hmm. then, you know, person like customizing too, which seems like a variation or it begs the sort of variation of the, of your Robert Nozick uh, experience machine, which is like, would you want that? <laughs> Even if they could, if some machine could tear to your taste, you know, better than you could even, it seems that most people wouldn't want that. It, it, it like, because yeah. I think part of the point is you're doing it is that you're making it for you're making your area for yourself and it is it's an art form even though it might be a little silly and and self-involved it's some, just something that people do you know you know Gwern is g-w-e-r-n yeah. so he has this this really challenging trolley and great essay that I love that's he kind of argues I don't, I don't think he still or ever maybe agrees with this but he makes the case that we should have a moratorium on writing new books. <laughs> we already have enough. <laughs> and that, and I think it's very true if the point of writing books was to make new books so people could read them. But I think it's just, that's part of what humans do. Humans write books. That's just part of human experience. And it's not for the finished product necessarily. Yeah. I think he's great. <laughs> yeah. For, for listeners who may not be as, as familiar with his, uh, with his work, what would you recommend they check out or, or what, what particularly is great about his stuff that you find? It's like, I just recently like binged about 30 different essays. <laughs> I don't know. He's go to the, go to the front page of his, his website and see if anything catches your eye. He's really, really interesting writer. I mean, in your study about ritual, did people provide a certain meaning to economic interactions or to trade that we can learn from today? When, sort of in the, the golden magical era when ritual was alive and <laughs> which I don't necessarily believe in. The further you go into the past, like it seems like lately everything I think of as modern ends up being medieval. Like <laughs> it's at least medieval and sometimes earlier. <laughs> Why how are all these things medieval? But 
I don't know. I don't know if people, whatever kind of knowledge they had was probably the kind of knowledge that we have now about industrial processes where it's really spread out and everybody has some, some part of it. And most of it is just what feels like normal. It would be hard to teach. <laughs> it, would be, it would be hard to explain. You can just do it. You just, you just go to mass or you just, you just have your, your altar and you interact with it in these particular ways. And it's just part of reality. Let, let's get into meaning a bit because you you've thought about it from different perspectives. You sort of unbundled it. You added sort of different lenses to it. Maybe we'll just start at the, at the highest level with how you define it or how you make sense of it, and then we can unbundle it. It's one of those things where it's really obvious. It's really important, but it almost doesn't exist. Like it's so and it, and I've thought about it so much that the word almost has no meaning for me. Ironically, but so most recently I was noticing. I was reading Seven Types of Ambiguity, Emson, and taking that with me as I experience the world and realizing that often something that's ambiguous is perceived as more meaningful than something that was just a statement of some particular, some one particular thing. So reading the the book I read right after Emson was uh, Ben Sinister, um, one of Nabokov's, what, he, he wrote it, what, like in the 40s, I think. Um, and there's so much ambiguity, but it's that's that's kind of where the meaning lies. And he loves to include lots of different kinds and levels of ambiguity and then point some of them out. And then he even when he's pointing out his own ambiguity, he's still trolling, like he's still like, I've pointed this out, but then there's these three other interpretations underneath that. And his writing feels so rich, I think partly because there's there's so many possible meanings. And it's not just it's not the same as nonsense. It's not the same as could mean anything. It could mean a few very specific things and you're constantly discovering some new specific thing. And I definitely don't understand how his writing works, but it does seem it has a, a special meaning in it. I think uh, Pynchon similar to this. Why is that, that ambiguity increases it? Um, and this, this is another thing I've been interested in lately. So there's this guy, Nick Lowe, L-O-W-E, who's a, I think he's a classic scholar. And his theory of narrative is that it's a, what it's about is the experience you go through from beginning to end as you're incorporating the information in the narrative. So I go in, maybe I have an idea of the genre, so I have some expectations. Um, I have a theory. As I get more information, I'm, I'm modifying my theories. I'm uh, coming up with new theories, discarding some, maybe bringing some back that I previously discarded. So a narrative is not so much just the, the words on the page or the things that happen. It's a more epistemological interaction with the reader, the audience. Their surprise is important, violating expectations, rhythm. And then an ambiguity is something that can be part of that, where uh, you can develop two different theories maybe at the same time and maybe by the end they both are still good <laughs> like they both still work so when, when people say that today we're suffering a meaning crisis and because of that and lots, lots of other people are more depressed people are more suicidal mm -hmm. more, more, lots of things less happy when they talk about meaning in that way does that resonate with how you think about meaning or are they totally misinterpreting meaning in your view or meaning good so one thing is people have this idea there's a suicide crisis. So there is no suicide crisis. <laughs> the suicide rate in the U.S. has been so amazingly flat other than a couple weird bumps in the early part of the century. That's the shocking story is 
and even outside of the U.S., there are some countries that do have suicide ups and downs. Like uh, South Korea's had a huge suicide spike, and it's it's coming down now. But for the most part, globally, there has not been much of a suicide increase, if any, over the years that the data has been collected. That's the mystery is not why is there the suicide increase. It's why is it so flat? Why doesn't it go down like every other cause of death? Why doesn't it go up? Because stress seems to be maybe going up. I don't know. Everything that we think of as bad maybe has increased. So why don't, why hasn't it gone up? But I see that as the, as the, the weirder question. It's so weird, but meaning crisis, I think has to do with not knowing what to do with yourself, kind of like not having a, a life path or a f- sort of final answer to why even bother that I think humans mostly have grown up with. I think most humans in history just had an obvious answer to that. And now most of us don't, <laughs> so, or at least a lot of us don't. It was just, obviously it's, you know, your family, your tribe, your, your religion. There's just, it, it would be a crazy question to ask for most of human history. And now it's not. So part of that is freedom. And, and I like that. I'd, I'd rather have a meaning crisis and be more free. Probably sometimes, sometimes I wouldn't, but. So I don't, I don't think people are, people evolve to generate their own meaning. I think that's a really new thing for people to be doing. Um, and we're not good at it yet. <laughs> we're trying to help each other, but I don't think we're good at it yet. And I, I know you're, you're friends and, uh, and, and a reader of, uh, of David Chapman, mm-hmm. uh, meaning this, do you, do you think he's the closest thing you've seen to, I guess, on the right track or something? Or like, how are we going to deal with this? And I think he's kind of, doing experiments, trying things himself. He, he, he and his wife live good, interesting lives. <laughs> like they're, they're um, examples for me. Like I, I admire them as, as people and yeah, fun, fun people to go hiking with. <laughs> if you asked me to summarize David's writing, I would have a hard time to like, to say, well, what is the answer he came up with? I'd have a hard time telling you that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, meta rationality is the word he, he keeps using, but sort of this you know, zoom out, and view the different modes with with which we can, you know, look. Oh, he, has at a, he has a metaphor I really like the the uh, the boat metaphor. Have you ever heard this uh, one? I can't, I can't recall. Wait, what is the it? sort of I, I'm probably mis, mis paraphrasing, but we used to maybe have, or maybe even just not really have, but think we had, or one of these sort of big cruise ships that would go out on the oceans of meaning and be really stable. And the best we can hope for now is just tiny little boats that are kind of very uh, maneuverable, but not very big and not very, maybe not very safe. <laughs> and so what do you think that suicide, you know, <laughs> crisis or, or, you know, falls aside, people underappreciate about how meaning is made or, or just misunderstand or, or, or we as a culture don't fully get. One thing is that it's just a, it's a lot of it is just a product of what you do every day all the time. And whatever you're doing all the day, all, all day, all the time, whatever you're listening to, talking about, doing, is what your life is. And there's no like, I don't think there's much of a narrative structure to life. And that's that's one of the illusions I think that maybe it's always been there. Maybe it's a product of being in a culture that has narratives like novels and movies. Maybe it's just that humans are naturally narrative. But I think we have this idea that there's you go along and you have the story and you have a you know, the meaning of my life is at some point in the future when I'll have this story and then the music will play or whatever. And I don't think that's real. I think I had that idea for a long time and 
kind of finally realized that the, no, there's just time. And that time is so weird. I'm not saying time is an answer because it's just a weird thing. It's just like a placeholder for this imaginary thing. But there's just the things you do, the things you listen to, read, people you interact with. And that's, that's kind of it. So that's where meaning comes from. And doing almost anything can give you meaning. Um, probably some things are better than others in the sense that, and, and better, better for some people than others too. Like, uh, what are your bodily capabilities? That's going to limit your, what you can do as an activity for meaning. Probably when I'm 70, I'm not going to be able to be a distance runner, <laughs> but you know, I have to find something else. What you find interesting. I'm much more interested in making things out of wool than making things out of steel at this point. Although I love watching YouTube videos of people making things out of steel, but I think the most important insight I've had about meaning is it's just what you do. It's just, and, and with, with my art or whatever, my, my fiber projects and stuff, it feels like it carries you along. Like it feels like the, the wool itself, whether it's just a dirty fleece or whether it's dyed locks or yarn or something, it's carrying you to the next step. And it seems to come from outside. It doesn't feel like I'm making a decision to do something like, Oh, okay. I can do this next state, next step of this thing. That's what it feels like for me. I don't know. Again, I don't know that I'm good at meaning. I think I might be especially bad at it compared to other people, but sometimes you can learn more from somebody who struggled to learn something yeah. than somebody who just came naturally. To that end, for people who are listening and say, hey, I, I do a lot of things, <laughs> and yet I feel this dearth of meaning. Mm-hmm. Do you do the same thing over and over, though? <laughs> oh, <that's> interesting. <laughs> so is, is meaning a repetition? I think I think so. And I, it's not always the same thing. It's so within something like a domain or a craft, and I think that's a, I don't have a good precise term for it. So one thing I was thinking about recently, when you're lacking inspiration, I think the answer is you just have to sacrifice. And I've written about sacrifice in terms of ritual, that all rituals involve a sacrifice. Will Newsom said the default sacrifice is time, which I love, that always you're sacrificing time. When you want inspiration, the way to get it is to do something hard. So that could be... For me, that could be climbing a mountain, which I like to do, but it's hard. Or it could be something in my craft domain. So learning how to do some new thing. I'm learning how to, I've, I've spun for 20 years on, on one of these, a hand spindle, and I'm learning how to spin on a spinning wheel. So I've, I've gone forward a few hundred years in technology. <laughs> and within a craft domain, so the, the unit of a craft or a domain, you have a little more predictability. You know, any hard thing you try, it'll attach to every other hard thing you've tried in the past, all your existing knowledge. So it'll kind of advance your, it'll be like a multiplier. Whereas if you just do something, you'll probably get inspiration from it. It'll probably connect up to something, but there's no guarantee. It's less predictable that it will just increase your whole, improve your whole game in your, your domain or your craft. So I think this is the right use. It almost begs the question of what a, what a domain is because it's trying to define it by the fact that, well, these all connect together. So it wouldn't necessarily be that, oh, it's the domain of, fiber arts or something, the domain is almost kind of revealed to you by what things connect up <laughs> to each other. Right. And I, I like the way David Chapman described it, where we sort of like ping pong or, or pinball between these like different confused stances of like, you know, eternalism, every, everything must mean, there must be some ultimate high order, meaning that, you know, connects everything together. Uh, and if there's any crack in that, then, then we go back to nihilism, which is just nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. is meaning. And he sort of alternates between this, uh, what is it, like nebulosity and pattern, like everything's mm-hmm. nebulous and patterned at the same mm-hmm. time. That sounds right. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. 
it's just, and, and I guess we, you, you're, you're sort of emphasize of, of repetition at the same time. Some people also get upset of not having enough novelty. Uh, do you think that's a false, um, allure or false promise, or we should resist that temptation for increasing novelty? <laughs> Give me an give me an example of when that would happen. Out, oh, to... yeah. So people are doing the same job over and over, or, or you know, hanging out with the same person over and over. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, I don't think I think there's always novelty. Often you see more novelty when you do the same thing over and over to some degree. Like I don't think that's true of if you're working in like a 19th century factory, hitting the same button over and over or something. I don't know that that would give you a lot of this kind of novelty, but with the same person, definitely there's so much novelty. Like, like my yeah. marriage, I think of immediately, but we've both changed so much. It's always interesting to talk to my husband. I don't know. Yeah. And what about things like music or things like scrapbooks or like, these seem to be like devices or tricks or something to increase meaning or nostalgia. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's great. I think the devices and tricks and stunts and stuff are basically what, crafts are made of like they're a lot of it is just being really careful and doing things really meticulously but there's there's tools there's little tricks and techniques and that's that's mostly what it's made up of like it's and it's exciting i think that it's not to belittle that like when you suddenly understand how something was made that's a great feeling to me like that's one of my favorite experiences oh that's how (laughs) it seems so impossible but it's a magic trick kind of because the, yeah. somehow the mode of how it's produced is is hidden. You you wrote in in one post on meaning and kind of recall you, uh, you you talked about pointing. What what is pointing? So pointing is a pretty complicated thing. So if I if I point at something, it seems it's we can immediately understand what I mean. Like if I if I point at my microphone over here, you know I'm indicating my microphone. Um, but it's a pretty intense cognitive process. Like a lot of animals cannot understand what it means. So step one, I have to get your attention. I have to make sure you're looking at me. Step two, I have to redirect your attention with the point. Step three, I have to communicate somehow what about the situation I'm pointing at. So, so, so you're doing a lot of work when I'm pointing, you're almost mind reading me. What about this is relevant. And relevance is another thing that, that I find exciting <laughs> is kind of a fake word that that does a lot of work, the word the word relevance. But but it, it's another one of those things. It's just a really complicated cognitive process that humans just get. It's just instant. So sometimes one of the meaning and pointing article I wrote, one of the most interesting points is where he's he's pointing to his supervisor, I think on a an archaeological dig. And what he's pointing to is itself pointing to something like he's pointing to a map and then he's pointing to something that relates to the map. So the map is basically pointing there and he's pointing to the point. So it's it's really, but the person he's talking to instantly understands it. So you can deconstruct it into the complications that are happening, but it just happens instantly. It's just already there. It's interesting. You also, uh, how do you find Roy Bowmeister? You you put one of your pieces that he uh, proposed that humans have four basic needs for meaning. One is an ultimate value base. Another is a need for purpose. Another is a need for status. And another is a need for efficacy or control. Can you un- unpack those a little bit? Um, thank you for the review because I actually wouldn't have been able to tell you this for off the top of my head. <laughs> the ultimate value is kind of what I was talking about earlier, the, the basic why. Like why get up in the morning? Why do anything? 
um, when you're asking like, is this valuable? The ultimate why is like what you compare it to. So, you know, like get up in the morning in order to eat or whatever, or go to work. And then, well, why do I do that? Ultimate value is sort of a stop to that. It's almost like a, like a thought stopper. So, so you don't go any further into the whys. And I think that's important. I don't know that I experience that other than just habit. So I don't really know what it's like to have that, but I think most of human history people have had that. Oh, also I think the less you ask why, the less, maybe the less people are suffering or the less they are forced to do work they hate, the less you're going to ask that. So the less need there is for an ultimate why. That if you're just chilling and everything's pretty good, you don't ask those kind of questions. So, <laughs> status could be seen as like a, a zero sum game that, you know, if you gain status, I lose status or whatever. The word I've some, I like that I've heard used for the status that's not zero sum is sociometric status. And that kind of has to do with, do people treat you politely? Do people care about you? That it's not always a trade-off. I think treating people really politely doesn't cost very much and it makes everybody feel better. Like if everybody kind of is, is just very polite, deferential to each other, if you have a, a culture where that's the norm, everybody feels a lot better than when they're constantly trying to undermine each other. So I think that's a big, a big thing with the status thing. There's also the comparative status that I want to be high status compared to other people. But I think that's pretty, that's zero sum and it's not like you can make everybody better off in that way. Whereas I think you can make everybody better off in terms of sociometric status where you just treat each other really well. Uh, There's been a debate on Twitter recently as to people, some people saying that uh, social capital is as positive sum as financial capital and others saying no attention is limited or or comparative, you know, ranks, ranks are limited. Mm -hmm. And people in response to that are saying, well, you could just keep inventing new games in the internet. That's another, that's another thing that I think is a great solution that, the more small pools you have, the more people can be good and valuable within their small little pool. You don't have to compete with everyone in the world. Hopefully <laughs> you don't have to be the best in the world in order to have any status. You can be, you know, someone who's, who's somewhat respected in their own little domain. And I think that's, that's pretty great. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a good life. Yeah. Well, one thing I sort of broader uh, question I have is, and this, I don't know if there's any answer to this, but when do we collectively sort of try to overcome our evolutionary you know, behaviors or constraints or design for them in? So the idea mm-hmm. of like, hey, humans are just going to compare about, you know, care about comparative status. Do we just keep that in, or going to be jealous or envious? Do we just design for that? It, you know, and that might mean like, you know, reduce wealth inequality, even if it means reducing overall GDP, if, if you mm-hmm. have that premise. Or... Rawlsian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it, you know, we used to do public beheadings and, you know, that we said, hey, let's be better than that. And and, mm-hmm. and what is Christianity? But It's but an not. ongoing collective art form that we're all doing yeah. of, of negotiating those things and trying to figure it out. And I think the, the best work is done at the super local level, like your own house or <laughs> your own family, your own friends. I've I've just gotten really doubtful in you know, the last 10 years of my life of large scale change, trying of individuals trying to promote some kind of nationwide or global change. Cause yeah, I don't, it seems like, it seems like tiling the world with things that don't work for the whole world. And it seems like it would be better if people solve these problems to the best of their ability from, from the small scale. And if everybody came up with really different solutions, I think that's fine. <laughs> I think that's probably better. Right. 
So, so is your take on status, hey, sociometric status, which I hadn't heard before, and I think I'm going to go deeper on, is is positive sum, whereas comparative status is inherently negative sum, although mm-hmm. you can ameliorate it by you know creating more gains. Yeah, and I think another benefit of those small ecosystems is that they're better for those sociometric status norms that you could probably get more sociometric status from a small group that it's not as tooth and nail competitive. Um, people kind of support each other. If it's a, if it's a small domain, some domains are hyper competitive, but I don't know. I'm not a very competitive person. so I, haven't, I don't have much experience in those. It seems for me fairly easy to find small, not super competitive, supportive communities of people doing stuff. Yeah. And the other thing people say in the positive social capital, you know, positive sum social capital uh, cases that trust is, um, if you build mm-hmm. incentives in the right way, that, that you can make trust positive sum. Mm-hmm. Do you have a take? I don't know how to think about that. Do you have a- I do have a take on that. I think trust re- relies on having boundaries. Trust relies on having being able to exclude people. So there's kind of a, a generic positive connotation to the word inclusive right now. And I think that's a problem. I think that Things have to be exclusive again on a, on a small scale in order to, to have that kind of dynamic where everybody's supporting each other. Because it's if it's too inclusive, you get sociopaths. <laughs> they like to infest the place. So it's an ongoing human problem. I, I don't think it's it's going to be solved in in the next five generations. I don't think that's just going to go away. But it's it's such an old problem that we do have tools and and evolved. Uh, capacities to deal with it so trying to shut down those capacities is something that i think sociopaths love that they they love the idea that you can't exclude me so it is interesting to think how that might get back in collective consciousness or or be politically correct i guess again (laughs) or or or, or politically feasible even to exclude there's that one phrase transcend and include which is like so catchy i wonder what i've never heard that phrase what does it mean I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's pithy. It's ambiguous enough to contain a lot of meaning. I would yeah. say transcend and include. I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's like sort of pluralistic pluralism in terms of ideas. Like just keep going meta. Just like include that, but just go one higher. <laughs> okay, I like um, that. Not necessarily like bad actors in your community, but ideas. Yeah. That's great. No, I'm yeah, yeah. accelerate like accelerationist. <laughs> Agree, amplify, accelerate. <laughs> yes it's turning politics or political thinking and philosophical thinking into improv like yes the yes and rule yes totally <laughs> there seems to be this trend that we try to quantify everything <laughs> particularly i mean and in technology there's this phrase uh measure what matters or or if it's not if it's not a measure it won't matter in your company yeah. it gets managed yes exactly and there's sort of this conundrum which is the things that really matter can't really be measured and yet and when we try to it sort of defeats the purpose anyways although if you're going to measure it it's better to measure better than <laughs> not <laughs> and so yeah quantify i don't know if we just accept the reality and just try to have better you know met- metrics for stuff or or we don't uh, or, or we somehow resist and yet find a way to prioritize things that we can't and i i think i mean, this is sort of played out topic but i, I social networks have really just provided metrics to things that or, or quantified things, even in subtle ways that we, we hadn't quantified before. It feels to me like when I think about what gets quantified in social media, things like your follower count to be really basic or likes or retweets on something, 
people kind of know what it means. So even though you have that thing that, you know, what gets the, the measurement is immediately undermined by people trying to uh, manipulate to, to go just for the measurement. I, the only word I can think of is Lucas critique, but I know there's a more common term for that. Um, good hearts. Good hearts. Law, yeah. It seems like people do kind of know what different measures mean. Like that becomes part of the culture that, you know, these things can be manipulated and, you know, the ways they can be manipulated. And there's, there's almost like a, a feeling, a sense that goes along with having numbers attached to things that, that it's not just the number you see, but you also have all your experience of what that, that measure means. So it, I think it could actually be pretty rich. I don't, if you have a dumb, naive actor, like a government actor trying to optimize some measure, then that might not work. But if you have, humans who are in full control of themselves, then I think they can, they can take numbers into better, sort of but, almost like an aesthetic of numbers. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I guess what I, I'm curious about is in a, in a utopian, well, even that term is so broad, but in, in a, in a, <laughs> in a, in a society that works for more people or, or, or that we're happy with is, is the ideal to have no metric, you know, fewer metrics, the same amount of metrics, or more metrics, putting aside the quality of, of, of the metrics, mm-hmm. or, or assuming mm-hmm. that, they're, that they're good um, or, or better than we have today. And um, I, I, I can make an argument both ways. I think on the um, no metrics side, the, the camp says, hey, when you put metrics to things, and I, I was talking to someone about it in college education, when you put metrics to things like a tie teacher's you know, measurement to their how well the students are doing in grades. And you could, even if you had multiple sorts of grades, like emotional learning or, you know, things that we value that we're not currently grading, then he said that the students might think, oh, the teacher's just, there might be sort of a double intent. The teacher's doing it for their own, for, as opposed to mm-hmm. for inherent sacredness mm-hmm. of it or, um, or their inherent love of, of the, te- of the yeah. student. Whereas, you know, the person with the physical metric says, hey, how will we know if we're doing, if we're doing it or, or actually, that's a good motivator because, yeah, um, people are motivated by that. That's interesting. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. Kind of changing the meaning of the relationship if you're yeah. supposed to things, if you quantify it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, another reason I've been thinking about this is because in the last year, I've thought a lot about income share agreements. Like Lambda School? Yes. Largely because, and I, I'm a venture capitalist and I've invested in a bunch of companies and I've felt even in the times where it was non-economic, where it was a very small amount of money to be symbolic, I felt sort of this kinship with the people I've, I've invested in. And I wonder, basically, you know, the, the example I give is like, if someone was, if my fifth cousin showed up in San Francisco and I'd never met them before, and someone just told me they were my fifth cousin and they asked us to, to stay on my couch, I would say, of course, because there's this sort of social context and sort of what I call it, like genetic equity or something. Like we, we just... Our, our fates are intertwined in some, uh-huh. in some way because we're family. And I feel that way too with people who I invest in or have mutual. Basically, I, I think income share agreement is a way of making our the intertwining of our fates legible um, in an interesting way. Hmm. And uh, you can only have so many fifth cousins, but you could mm-hmm. you know, cross a line, cross invest with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could it be a way to scale or you, you, not infinitely, but even just an order of magnitude or you know, the amount of people that are sort of in our, you know, would stay on our couch circle. Kind of like a, a different form of kinship. Yeah. Economic kinship. 
but also, you know, what's lost when that happens or, or what, or what's changed. So that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's something I'm a lot about. You, you've thought a bit about sacredness. Uh, and you had a post called weaponizing sacredness. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about it or what, what you think people misunderstand or underappreciate as it relates to sacredness? Yeah. I think people tend to think whatever their sacred beliefs are, are not sacred. They're just right. So I don't think people think of that as, as a form of sacredness. Again, kind of the professional atheist idea where everything sacred is just silly and we shouldn't, you know, that's, it's almost a bad thing. Like it has a sort of generic bad connotation, but I think it's just universal. And for a while people were saying it was only like, you know, religious right-wing people who experience sacredness, but I, I don't think that's true at all. I think everybody, and it's, it's not that people don't vary. I think people vary in how seriously they take the sacredness of things and even how much they can perceive it. Like, it seems to me like autism seems to make it harder to perceive socially sacred things, which makes autistic people kind of cool to hang out with. <laughs> so, but I think everybody has, has sacred beliefs. I think like you kind of know, like what you're allowed to talk about, like nine 11 is somewhat sacred. We're not really supposed to make fun of it. It's extra funny if you do, because it's sacred. So but things like that, um, climate change would be one of those, those sort of sacred things um, that is just shocking to to challenge or to make fun of. Or, yeah, I think the misunderstanding might be that it's it's a specific religious thing and not something that's just universal that everybody has. Right. It's sometimes it's hard to see. Um, I'm not sure I could tell you what I consider sacred, but but it's kind of you can you can see it better in your out group <laughs> like when you're treating people as the out group. Like, oh well, they just have they believe in this and. It's harder to see your own in-group and what they what they take sacredly. But I know I have them. I know they're there. And what's the relationship between sacredness and meaning? Is is, is, is something sacred when people just describe oh, yeah. too much irrational it, meaning? It's one of those, in Baumeister terms, it's the final value. So whatever has been, you can't just decide to have something be sacred. I think it has to, it's a complicated process of over time, gradually, your behaviors and what you hear and how you interact with people and the kind of people you meet who your in-group is. I think that's probably the most important thing. And sacredness is something that's built up over time. That's, that's created as a cooperative effort. It's not something that can be just kind of imposed from the top down. There might be some exceptions to that with certain dictatorial regimes, but that's just a whole other complicated <laughs> analysis. <laughs> um, like uh, Timur Karan's uh, preference falsification stuff deals with this, that, Often what looks like it's sacred is people not actually feeling it's sacred, but feeling that everybody else treats it as sacred and, and acting based on that. Like, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because people don't want to hurt each other's feelings. And that's good. People shouldn't hurt each other's feelings for the most part, but also can, can have a horrible dark side. But the, the dynamic, the, the way that, that, uh, mass famines work partly is for, through this preference falsification and through everybody, maybe for a very good reason, being afraid to state their true beliefs and their true preferences because they're afraid they're going to get, you know, genocided or something or, or, uh, or canceled in a less serious, less serious way. To close out the loop on Bonister, is, is there anything else from that book that you think is sort of major takeaway that was very surprising to you or would be surprising to, to others who read or sort of, He's so interesting. Like the thing people know about Baumeister tends to be the the willpower stuff that willpower, his, his idea that willpower was a limited resource based on glucose and all that stuff has, has kind of been, you know, failed to replicate. 
but he's so interesting. I don't think he ever should have done any experiments. He should just write papers because he's so interesting. One of his papers in that book, which is, I think it's called Meanings of Life. I could be misstating it, but is uh, about the history of women and housewifery, being a housewife. I'm a housewife. I don't have any kids, but so that's interesting to me. But he thinks it was something that was kind of invented in the 1820s in England when women's work had been largely industrialized before men's work was industrialized and was, was basically taken away. So women were doing, you know, this kind of thing, <laughs> spinning, making cloth, making, making yarn, making clothing. And that was the first thing to be able to be industrialized. So you have suddenly you have this class of people who are not economically viable. What do you do with them? And I think one of the things that people came up with, one of the solutions was, well, they're going to be full-time mothers. They're going to be taking care of their kids all the time. And that's so important. It's a new source of meaning. The idea that, you know, that child rearing is a sort of science that, that really affects how children turn out. And uh, that it was sort of a relatively modern invention, whereas we think of it as a very traditional thing, you know, the idea of women staying home with their kids and not working in the market. But pretty, at least according, according to his analysis, pretty recent innovation of having this and I, and I was thinking recently, what happens when it goes the other way? What happens when men's work becomes obsolete before women's work? And I don't think it looks as good. I think places where that happens, that tends to be the men aren't home taking care of the kids. They're more, you know, drinking and gambling and, and doing cool fight clubs and stuff like that. So I don't, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good life. Honestly, I can't, I can't judge it. I don't, I don't have experience with that, but I think that's interesting. It's not bad. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I shared with you Kevin's uh, description of you know the traditionalists rather than honest, uh, just, but also appreciate science of progress, is that something that that resonated with you? Did did you? Yeah. <laughs> so this is a big this is a big problem I have. I think, and he's he's absolutely on it. Like, I would not want to live at any other time. I, I think the past is terrifying, <laughs> and I've kind of almost lived in the past. So like, we didn't have electricity or running water when I was little. Um, so I've kind of lived in it, you know, we go out to the outhouse in the middle of winter because even when we had running water, the pipes would freeze and sometimes there'd be a bear in that house or something. So I don't know. It's, it's a lot of work. It's boring, but they have such good aesthetics. <laughs> like, I, it would, it would be, a, the, the problem is how do we bring good aesthetics of the past into the, into modernity, into the future? Again, my answer is probably mostly on the small scale and it's not going to be, I don't think that they're going to start mass producing good aesthetics for us. I think it's going to be more of a hobby that people have. And I don't think it's going to be economically viable in terms of like making a living at it. I think it's mostly a hobby that people have for creating their meaning outside of the job. Yeah, it is interesting. It, it, to the extent that I have a traditionalist bent, it's, it's less in the realm of aesthetics probably because I am, Oh yeah. I have other criticisms of modernity. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a product of modernity and I have no taste <laughs> like you know, Starbucks in every corner. doesn't bother me from an aesthetics. I don't know. I don't know why maybe I get a kick out of it. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah. My, my, just, you know, my family is, my mom's side is Colombian and they're a lot less money, I guess on average, but are a lot happier. And so maybe you're including aesthetics broad, more broadly than, than I would, but the, I know I spent enough time in sort of San Francisco, like technology scene to know that, certain things lend themselves to unhappiness or, or disconnection mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. And 
and they align somewhat with modern and more modern uh, stuff, or at least on the hyper side of that. Like I lucked into a great marriage and I think that's rare in maternity. <laughs> it's not set up to support lifetime marriage. And I think it's less that people get divorced. It's more that people don't get married, at least statistically, but I think it's, it's hard. And one thing is we don't have that. Most people don't have that kind of economic bond. Like everybody's kind of expected to be individualist and take care of themselves and I don't know. I hear, I hear from my young friends that the dating scene is just horrible, <laughs> that everything is online, but they still, despite all the magic of algorithms, they can't find people who are like them. And so I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's better when you had your, your, you know, Yenta grandma trying to set you up with people. <laughs> and when you say luck, is that some version of that happened to you or you married young or? I got lucky. No, no, I was 34, I guess. And yeah, never, never met anybody like my husband. Never. Yeah, but it's just, it's so great. I wish everyone could have it. I never even thought it was possible. But yeah, I, I want that for all my young friends. But I think it's it's hard. It's harder now, I think, than it used to be. And is it harder because our expectations are just higher and we're comparing it or because? I don't know. I think maybe there's there's some degree that you're always wondering if it's going to last. I mean... Can you really just put your whole self into it? Can you really do that? Are you safe doing that? Maybe you're not. I mean, that's that's part of it's. It's not like humans have always been lifetime monogamous. Like the like monogamy is a great innovation that humans have. But if you look at the biographies of various hunter gatherer people, they'll often have four or five marriages throughout their lives. And so I, I don't think it's just easy for people. Easier for people in the past. Or, sorry, I don't think it's easy for people in the past. But I think they're there are special challenges to it now and that it's not something necessarily that you're encouraged to sacrifice for that, you know, it's, there, there's almost a feeling that your, your main, and this, this is something Baumeister talks about too, that I think that I think he's deep on the, the idea of the self. He's written several books about the modern self that it takes so much weight now and it carries so much meaning. You don't have necessarily the same outside sources of meaning and the self can be in conflict with the relationship. Like it's, it's, if you think of the values that are sort of ambient in our culture, sacrificing yourself for your relationship is not something that's encouraged. I don't think, I think it's almost like, well, if your spouse is limiting you, you should get divorced or something. Yeah. Like the self is like, I felt really good getting past that. I never thought it would happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the customer is always right. And the self is a customer. Yeah. Yes. Your true true self can tell you what's right and wrong instead of, so yeah, I want to pull a couple of threads there. One is the sacrifice. We mentioned it earlier as it relates to ritual. And is that mostly just because, you know, once you sacrifice for something, you're going to want it more. And so ritual was a very like. Yes. Yeah. No, I think there's a psychological thing that I've, I've done the sacrifice for this. So it must be really important. There's that's an aspect of it. I don't think it's all of it, but I think there's definitely an aspect of that. What and else? You communicated to yourself. So sort of self-signaling, but you've also communicated to the world. So you've shown your spouse or whoever, whatever, everybody in the world that you're, that you're serious about it. You don't just say it, but you do something hard in that way. So I had the great honor of, of marrying two of my friends recently, that, and they're, they're a great young couple. And one of the things I talked about in, in the, my wedding homely was, <laughs> was that when you're in a really good relationship, you just feel like you don't deserve it. <laughs> you just feel like you didn't do anything to do this. 
Yeah. So it actually is relieving when you can do something hard for your partner. <laughs> like it's like, oh, I can finally make up for for this thing that I've been given that I don't have any way to express. So I think I think that's a different side of sacrifice that you don't think about unless you're in a really good situation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I really like that line. That that resonates. Wait, so if part of it is 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 you know just practical and effective, what's the other part of sacrifice? Do you think you said it's not all of it, but you think it's but, yeah. So so self signaling. But also signaling to other people. So right. signaling, oh, it's just signaling. No, signaling is really important, especially costly signaling. So signaling that's hard to fake, and that's that's an important thing in the money thing too. Yeah. So the hard to fake, hard to. But you signal to the world, and communication is kind of the most important thing about being human, and that's just another form of communication. It's not right. just. And and when you say the money thing, you mean that good money? Oh, the the idea of what money is that what money is is this hard to forge. Yep. valuable thing. Yeah. Yep. So when you, uh, you know, Kevin Sumler's book and, and Robin Hans's book is basically mm-hmm. how signaling rules our life. In yeah. all these it, those are, those are two strong influences. I mean, I've been reading Robin Hanson since mid 2000s. So, yeah. yeah. So, so you're basically on board with that thesis. Yeah. yeah. I think that's it. It's, it's something, I don't think it's everything, but it's a huge part of reality. And, uh, and it's fun because people don't like to think about it because it's kind of uncomfortable. So that makes it yep. even more interesting. <laughs> yeah. And and what about cause, uh, the self as it relates to authenticity? Because that's something you've, you've written about. Mm-hmm. And we sort of have this cultural ideal of authenticity, which sort of assumes one true self and you just listen to it and then it'll tell you. So in a world where we shatter the one true self construct, w- what does authenticity look like? I had kind of an epiphany about this recently and I replaced authenticity with honesty. And for me, doing my stupid little fiber work, every decision I make, there's some decision that's honest and there's one that's not. There's one that's like cheating. And the more I strive to make the honest decision in that context, and it's, you know, it when you feel it, you know, it when you see it, you know what it is. So it's, it's hard to explain outside of like the particular problem you're going through. But I think that's true of, of most things that there's. It has to do with how much information you can keep in your head. It has to do with what's important, what you're deciding is important. But I don't, I have a hard time even kind of like meaning. I have a hard time even knowing what authenticity means, but I really feel like I know what honesty means now. (laughs) To me, what I'm doing now is kind of trying to get closer to the sheep. (laughs) That sounds like instead of spinning from a prepared roving, for instance, and getting a filthy, dirty, you know, something that just came off the sheep and dealing with that and turning that into a garment. And to me, that's one way right now of becoming more honest and making my work more honest. That's not the only way. Um, you can make completely honest things out of, out of pre-made yarn or whatever. You can, I think there's honest fashion that you just buy at the store. Like I think every decision you're making, um, even if it's just what to buy or, or what to wear is a decision that could be honest or dishonest. It could be an expression of your soul, an expression of your true self or not. Right. Um, it's easy to lie to yourself, but then it's also the more you get into things, the less easy it is to lie to yourself and the more you can see it. <laughs> so when people describe things like Las Vegas as like honestly dishonest or something. <laughs> I or, hate Las Vegas. I live in Reno. so I, <laughs> Or like Wall Street. I don't know. Things that are just like. <laughs> Disneyland is the one I would pick. Disneyland okay. is the one I would. Yeah. I love Disneyland, but. Yeah, it's very, and the, the Baudrillard uh, comment that Disneyland is fake so we can pretend that everything else is real. <laughs> Paraphrasing. But, but yeah, I think honestly dishonest or an honest fake 
Or... Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a better way. That's a form of honesty. Yeah, it is interesting. I, mean, I wonder if there's sort of like this, um, and that's what some people call performance art, right? Is like if if the one true self was a flawed construct, and it is, you know, and authenticity isn't, you know, just finding the answer by listening to your gut. They're the one answer. Is it sort of expressing the the pluralism of of, of selves that that come up mm-hmm. at the same time? You know, not every idea has to be expressed for, mm-hmm. you know, for one to be honest or even honored. What's relevant? That's one of the judgments that you're always making. What's the relevant thing? And two different people in two different times, there may be to- two different answers that are both honest and correct in that in their their lives and their situation. So, yeah. So Venkat has thought a lot about, or seems to be writing now about sort of reality tunnels and you know, different sort of you know, there used to be Walter Conkright and we all had the same conception of truth and then, you know, infinite sort of fragmentation because TV, newspapers, internet, et cetera. And now people are basically, <laughs> everyone's got their own movie. You've written a little bit about truth, but I guess in a world in which things are relevant, I don't know, is there, is there anything you have to, to add to that conversation or that you have a, a question about that conversation? I don't know if this is really relevant. I think YouTube videos are the most interesting art form right now. <laughs> I haven't made any, but I'm really interested in them. And so there's the um, Marshall McLuhan thing about every every new technology makes something obsolete and also brings something back. And I feel like the YouTube videos have brought everything back. Every craft that's ever been done by humans, you can see someone doing it on YouTube. Often you can see someone explaining every step of how they do different crafts in many different ways on YouTube. So is that I don't think that I think there are more and less honest ways of doing it. The the kind of nasty stereotype about that is that somebody is creating this false world and where everything's perfect and showing off their lifestyle and everybody else is aspiring toward that. I don't think it's all like that. Most of the ones I like are kind of people sharing their joy, like <laughs> and and their knowledge and trying to entertain people. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. The uh, going back to status of, uh, for a second, um, and you know, I think you and Kevin went back and forth on sort of the his his status post, you know, on prestige and sort of his theory of, of status, and then Gal Alexander wrote his own sort of contrast. What what was your sort of takeaway from from sort of the the status as prestige and that I guess relationship between the person who has status and then the person who gives or the group of people that you know give status. One of the models I like for this is that it's a economic redistribution mechanism <laughs> that we give status to people who do things that are good for the group. And that could be giving money to the group. That could be just working hard on behalf of the group. One, so I had a great experience at, you know, refactor camp recently. Yeah. One of the, one of the people that ran a, a game and it was sort of a live role-playing game where we went around the city and kind of just the block. We walked around the block and we tried to imagine what it would be like in the future. And they, we kind of made, made up stories within our little group of five based on this. And it really felt like everybody was still normal humans, you know, healthy humans who are trying to show off and get status. But we were all directing it toward making a better story. So we were in a situation where instead of trying to show off randomly, we were trying to show how great we were by making, by forwarding the group's goals, by, by uh, accomplishing something for the group. I think that's, it's, it, I think that's what good management is like in the business context, (laughs) somehow magically turning everybody's natural healthy status drive toward the aims of the group. 
and not not just business management, but maybe like your hunting party, whatever, like whatever kind of human group you're doing that that has a goal. And it's a really great experience. Like I felt really kind of happy. So uh, only because I was thinking of the afterword that you wrote for the uh, Cradle Great. <laughs> leaning into our narrative, you know, uh, what's the name? Taleb sort of coined the narrative policy thing. Should we be leaning into our narrative making tendencies or should we be sort of cautious of them or? In terms of expecting your life to have a narrative, I don't know how much good that does. In terms of making narratives with other people and, and sort of a smaller scale, I think that's pretty unavoidable and good. Also, just some people have a more narrative experience of life than others. Like Galen Strassen has a famous paper where he claims not to have a narrative experience of himself and that a lot of people don't have a narrative experience of life. So I don't, I don't think necessarily everybody views it that way. And some people might do a lot better having a, a more narrative experience of life. For me, I, I'm not able to maintain that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I feel a lot better when I'm just experiencing every five minutes of time as it comes <laughs> for the most part and kind of looking out in the world to see what I should be doing next instead of having a kind of long-term plan. Speaking of refractive camp, you gave a talk on, on voids. Can you, can you uh, unpack a little bit of the, the takeaway of that talk or what was intriguing for you about grant making? Oh, it was just, a. so sometimes I'll do, I'll get into these things where I just suddenly see things in a different way. And one of them was the rectangle thing where I just suddenly, there were just rectangles everywhere and, and everything was, was in the form of rectangle. And the void thing was similar that once I started thinking about it, it seemed like the world was made up of voids and everything important was a form of a void that was sucking something into it. Uh, one of the, the most meaningful ones is just a, like a social role or a possibility for being something or doing something as a void. So maybe I set up a, con- a beauty contest. That's a void because there's going to be a winner. We don't know who it is, but, oh, you could be that winner. You could be the winner of the beauty contest. But it could also be if I have you know, my YouTube channel, I'm making videos. I'm also maybe being a role model to people. So I'm saying, here's this void. I'm in it. But maybe you could be like this, but you. So something kind of different. So I think, yeah, a role model maybe is a good word for it, a kind of a kind of void, but also roles that have never existed are maybe more interesting kind of void. <laughs> you know, being a, a starship captain or maybe something a little bit, <laughs> something, something we can't even think of until somebody decides that they can do that. So we don't know what those are because, because of the lack of that kind of void at this point. And when people come up with those things, I think that's how change happens and how innovation happens to some degree. I I think this is more obvious, but invention is kind of filling the void innovation in, in a more mechanical sense. You know, there's this, there's this need ideally, and then here's this thing to do it. Often I think it happens in the other direction of we came up with this thing. What can it do? (laughs) What can we use it for? But yeah, knowing, knowing there's a need is kind of knowing there's a void, knowing there's this thing to, to work into. Seth Roberts has a great essay about gift giving and human evolution and procrastination and a million other things. But the point, the point I'm interested in, in terms of voids is he thinks that the the gift giving tradition creates a void where we need new novel decorative stuff. And so I need, you know, to make this thing, but pretty or this thing, but special this thing, but it's blue or whatever. So that is sort of this void. We always have this demand for new and interesting things. Maybe they're useless, but that causes people to develop things. And often 
you see something decorative is the origin of something much more useful. So the origin of chemistry, a lot of that came from dyeing, which I'm interested in right now, but we would just want to make something pretty, but then, oh, it, it unleashes this whole domain of new knowledge that we were just trying to make something special and pretty, but it ends up being so useful. So that's a, that's a kind of void that I'm interested in, just the, the impact on human culture of having this gift-giving tradition, which creates voids. I have to give you something, so there's a void. I have to find something, and then somebody has to make it. It has to be relatively new and pretty and interesting-looking. doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> how do you think voids relate to debt, or how do you think of the cause of debt? I don't know if you read David Graeber's book, Debt. I read a little of it. I think I, <laughs> I kind of know what he's talking about, but yeah. Other than his understanding of the history of money, it has some interesting uh, claims and interesting ideas in it. That and and it kind of relates to the gift giving thing we we're talking about the of and money in general. That the origin of money, to some degree, it looks a lot like a debt. If you look at these. You know, imagine the circle of tribes who each have a different protein specialization and they're kind of trading in the long term with each other by season. You could look at that and say that's a gift giving relationship. You could say that's a trade relationship, but it all, it does, it does look like there's this void that's being filled and it's, that's the, that's what's underneath that. <laughs> there's, you could say, well, I owe a debt to the next tribe on for a certain amount of protein it's symbolized by this money that I have or they have a debt to me that's symbolized by the protein they have, and then they're going to give it to me, and I'm going to give them this. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go deeper on these concepts that we've, we've been circling a little bit around uh, you know, humor, uh, language, and, and sacredness. But first, just close the loop on sacredness. What, is it, what does it mean to weaponize sacredness? So it's kind of so making something into a weapon so you can use it for the purposes of destruction. <laughs> for That could be for literally killing people. So the weaponized sacredness of the cultural revolution, for instance, that can mean just canceling people. Modern weaponized sacredness usually doesn't result in people dying, but just social death maybe. It has to do with taking things that groups find sacred, amping it way up, and pouring fire on the conflict, I think is the way it usually works. And I think because we almost deny that we have sacred beliefs, we kind of don't know how to deal with them as well and don't know how to moderate them. I think I won't, I won't say the history of religion is great on this, but there have been good moments. Like let's say there's a million possible religious beliefs that you could have. Most people share that share some religious beliefs, but they might not share all of them. We probably don't want to force people to believe like 10 million specific things. Like that's really a lot of work. That's going to limit your scientific investigation. But if you all just believe some small set of things, that might be that might be workable. If you just have some small set of things we all agree on, we agree they're all sacred, we don't violate them, anywhere else go wild. I think that makes some amount of sense. Like that's kind of a compromise for knowing that we're gonna have some, but you know, I'm not gonna burn your house down for not having the same interpretation of this passage of this text as I do. So I think we're kind of missing that. Like what, what few things are sacred or does it have to be everything? How do people kind of express that when people express it differently? Are they just trash? Are they, are they garbage people who are, who don't have the same human rights as you do? Yeah. I don't, I don't think people are too good at, at dealing with that now. I think usually maybe we've had better frameworks for channeling hostility in that way. And it's also that one, one I think, thing I think the modern sacredness religion is missing is a salvation doctrine that <laughs> there's no way you can ever be a good person if you're not 
just good. Like there's nothing you can do that will just save you or, I don't know, you're kind of, you have original sin, but no possibility of salvation. So. And maybe no confession either or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, no secrecy, certainly. Yeah, totally. You you written a bunch about humor and even analyzing sort of what makes, you know, like drill tweets funny or, you know, in like formation of language. I'm curious, just, we were talking earlier about you know, sacred things you can't laugh at. Mm-hmm. I, my whole life, I've gotten into trouble at laughing at the wrong times. That makes them way funnier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, do you know why laughing me, sort of in some way means to disrespect something? Like, why does it mm-hmm. to honor it? Or I don't know. That's interesting. Why is laughing at something disrespectful? When often we want to be laughed at. Yeah. Maybe we want to be laughed with. Yeah. I think possibly part of it is because it's so powerful. It's such a <laughs> humor is such a powerful weapon that, and people understand that even if you can't argue your, your way against something, if you, and it almost like a joke is almost the best way to make an argument in a lot yeah. of cases. If you can form an argument as a joke, it's often really powerful and, if the essence of it can be expressed that way. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, the laugh is powerful. It's a powerful way to shame a group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if only like laughs were unbundled because they, they serve very different purposes. Yeah. <laughs> they're bonding. Sometimes they're, you know, alienating. A lot of comedy just isn't funny. And it's often the case that the comedy that respects the dominant sacredness can't be funny, but the other comedy can be. So it's kind of unfortunate that <laughs> For the dominant sacredness, but that's kind of the nature of what a dominant sacredness is. is. And it's again with honesty, they can't be funny and not be honest. So it's it's almost they're only stand-up comedians, but they're doing a pretty serious and special job. Yeah, um, I have a lot of respect for for a lot of stand-up comics. But, yeah, uh, it's it's an art form. It's an important art form. There's no way to do it without this really soul-searching honesty i think so but you, you've been interested to sort of dissect humor via, via like like mm-hmm. what can, i'm let's say i'm trying to be more funny what can i learn from what you've learned about language and humor and so the the theory that i think is just probably correct at this point about humor is the was it adams dennett and hurley are the three authors called inside jokes and the the core of humor in this model is Step one is you set up expectations, but the expectations are invisible. So you don't specifically say exactly what's going on, but you imply it. And then people set up a mental model. They're kind of forced to set up this mental model. And then you drop a bomb on it and show them that that was a wrong assumption. So that's kind of the forcing this uh, mental model to, to come into your head and then showing you that it was wrong. And their theory is that that's really good because that's debugging your mental model and that you should get a reward for that. Cause otherwise it would just be embarrassing. Like, Oh, I was wrong. But that your brain should give you a reward for kind of debugging your models and getting better models, realizing we live, we don't live in the world. We live in the space of words and mental models and images. Given how important that world is to us, we really want it to be pretty correct like to be, to get the right model at the right moment to, not be making mistakes in that world because then bridges will collapse and all kinds of stuff like that. <laughs> so, so they're evolutionary, evolutionarily, maybe there should be a, a reward for that. And they think the, the mirth response is the reward for the sort of debugging that you're doing. And then comedy, as we know, it, is kind of a super normal stimulus, poking that reward function, just giving you that same reward as much as possible. 
and that that would be that would be something that people would do to show off throughout human history that that's that's a way to to kind of show off how great your brain works and, and stuff like that yeah it's interesting it maybe may sort of you know rising with some the meaning crisis or meaning opportunity <laughs> as we, we talked earlier is sort of this like concomitant like self-awareness of like you know even what mental models are in the first place but then that itself is like a mental model like yeah, just sort of this increasing abstraction. Nested models are that's the best kind of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this gets at your sort of life as a joke philosophy. I mean, I don't know if that's putting too much, um, but I guess just sort of like, and a realization that's all too complicated, or you know, but there's a lot of humor in trying, or so. Or I guess is there anything you'd add to that? And I think it's it benefits everyone when you're funny that you can do something that's funny. That's that's good for the group. It's not just good for you. It's, uh, everybody's entertained. And those kind of things are really valuable. And it's hard for me to see big, important things as as valuable as small, little happiness creating things on a small level. And I think those are really important and maybe should even be considered more sacred. Like that's, that's part of what freedom of speech is. I don't think most people treat freedom of speech as very sacred. But it would kind of be, it's always kind of a sad little belief that people kind of vaguely think it's good, but I can't really explain why. But I, I think it would be better maybe if that were treated as more sacred. You know, maybe people would just be even more obnoxious, but. <laughs> you had one, this is in one of your comments. You said, and, um, this is a way for me to get at, ask you about language. You said meaning and truth are both aspects of the fact that our consciousness is based on language. <laughs> no recollection of that. That's interesting. Yes, that's really smart. I totally used that. <laughs> November 6, 2015. <laughs> that's kinda, I, think, I think what I meant by that is kind of the, we don't live in the world, we live in this, image, this world of language and images and things like that. Help me understand that world better. We live in that world as opposed to any other worlds we could like live in or, or, or what the implications of that are we should be way more self-aware or, or what would it mean to be like very self-aware of how language how we perceive language or interpret language, like what would being self-aware give us in that way? That's pretty dangerous, actually. I don't even know yeah. if it's a good idea, but like, I, I've not proven this is safe in any way, but like looking around your room, you're not just looking at objects. You're not just looking at material, like atoms arranged in some particular way. Every single thing has a name. First of all, it has maybe several names, um, has a function purpose, has a history that you know it's not sort of a like you can kind of look around and have a lot of context for what you're supposed to be doing or who you are and that's even true with your own brain like if you look around your brain you find a lot of things like that and yeah i think i don't even know if anybody really believes we live in a world of atoms and and stuff and material but but there's there's maybe a straw man person that can construct your things you know we just live in the real world and there's there's this real world that's made of stuff and we interact with the stuff and I think there's this huge layer that that is between us and the stuff that's that's language that and language I think kind of permeates the stuff like the name isn't just like um, outside it's it's part of the thing it's it's what the nature of the thing is you know is there a difference between me looking at my TV or looking at like a TV within a TV or something, or like a virtual reality version of a TV <laughs> I, I think it would depend on how it functions. Like I think you in a VR sim or whatever, looking at a TV within that, if you're using it for the same reason you're using a TV in atom reality, then probably they're pretty similar. Probably they're the same. But you would say like a plant or something would be different because it's one is actually. Good, good question. 
plants are really devious, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Plants are, they have this nature that you just, they're so beautiful naturally. They're just, their construction, all these cute little mathematical tricks they've come up with throughout the, the millennia to to get things attention, to get bugs attention, or to, I don't know, to try to get you not to eat them, or to try to get you to eat them, or try not to get you to eat them too much. And a virtual reality plant is possible, I think, but it would have to, I think it would have to ha- be based on some kind of genetics and have to be able to adapt and evolve and go toward the sun or whatever within that to be really the same thing. Yeah, I heard recently, I heard the, proposition that we put nature preserves in orbit (laughs) so huge nature preserves so that humans wouldn't interfere with them and they would be protected from invasive species and i was thinking that's really interesting but isn't what nature means that it changes over time like how would you know how much it was allowed to change invasive species just means the world changes and things come together like the continents collide or suddenly there's shipping routes that go places that they didn't go before and so I think that's that's part of what nature is. That's like the underlying reality of nature. That also comes from language and all the things I understand. I'm not just seeing that aspect of nature necessarily. That's coming from my idea world of having the name of, of plants and things and looking at a lot of plants and seeing how they change over the seasons and coming up with theories about what they're doing, like the plants who are really love to be on fire and they really want everybody else to be on fire too. And the only way they can reproduce is to, to burn. <laughs> so, no, I think I think there could be a plant reality within within VR, but it would be a special VR plant. I don't think it would just be a picture of a plant. Right. Whereas a TV mostly is a picture of things. So I think that's a lot easier to put into a VR situation. Is there sort of a sacredness that people attach to reality that and as a dystopian you know, conversely, that people attach to virtual reality because it would sort of shatter a key mental model people have, which is a core, you know, that there is a real world and they're a part of it? I don't see much of that. I don't think there's a sacred opposition to virtual reality. Whatever Nozick says about the experience machine, a lot of people in in surveys say they would go right into the experience machine. And I don't think there's a big, there's a there's much of a sacredness thing about that. I think there might be in the future and it will be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, what zones are you allowed to have internet in? And are there zones that are protected that you just go there to not be in that particular kind of part of the world. And that's, that would be a really modern thing. Having a zone, an internet free zone is a really kind of postmodern idea. It's not, a, not like going back to the past. It's a new place, a new thing of offline. There is some, I guess, uh, which is some, some sacredness around like, or anti-sacredness around people, um, you know, putting their phone, stigma, people putting their phones out, you know, like uh, you're in nature and you have your phone out. You're, Video games, yeah. No, there's stigma against video games. I think. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that, yeah. And it's also this desire of, like, being present, that mm-hmm. people, or, but, and not present in your phone, like, present in, <laughs> in the real world. I think there's ways to use it honestly and not. Like, I think there are times when I have the idea to make some particular dumb video or something, and I go out in nature for that reason, and I wouldn't have been out in that part of nature otherwise. So that's great. Like, that's not, like less real. I don't know. And I'd bring, bring my phone. I love, yeah, taking pictures of things when I'm out hiking. It's, and you go a little slower. So that's nice. It kind of slows you down a little bit instead of just, it's almost like you're more, in some, I don't think this is always the case, but in some, t- in some situations you're more present because you're like, you're going slower. You're thinking about what you're seeing. You're maybe thinking about how you'd present it to other people. 
I think you can, you can probably go too far with that and not really be present, but I think there's ways that can make you more present and more like you're not just alone. You have your whole friend group with you to see this with you and you have them in your head to imagine what they think of this place. So Yeah. It is interesting going back to a point you made earlier in different contexts about like self-awareness or even, or even sort of a literacy around a specific situation doesn't mean that you're necessarily better at it. In fact, what you recommended for the thing, sometimes it, it makes it harder. And I wonder if that's, that's because it self-selects for, for people who, who it's harder for, they want to learn it more. And so they become more literate in it. Or I remember I, I was, I read Moneyball, this book, Michael Lewis. That's about, great. That's yeah. Great. About baseball. Yeah. And I haven't, I never saw the movie, but I, I read the book. I really liked it. Yeah. And someone was saying, uh, you know, someone was doing all the analysis of, of, of these players and, and someone was asking, you know, should, should one of the players, you know, read this analysis? And someone said, I can't remember if it was the smart person or the not smart person, uh, don't give him something to read. That'll just make him think more like <laughs> in the moment. Be <laughs> not thinking about it on the metal. He just needs to be like, yeah, on the surface, like, the ground level. And maybe ha- like having more layers makes it more difficult to be more present or something. Yeah. Or in, in the long term, being able to incorporate that. Maybe you can't right away. Yeah. But- can incorporate like one thing at once. I've learned kind of trying to learn how to do target shooting that you can be focusing on like one thing at a time. And as you get better, that can be a bigger thing or that can be one thing becomes unconscious and you can move on to the next thing. If, if you can get to a point where that kind of maybe the whole overriding economic analysis of what contributes most to your team's success, if you can make that unconscious, then that would be that would be good. But if it was going to be another layer of conscious stuff that was just messing with your existing good strategy, that would probably not be good. Yeah. And, and just to close the loop on being present and you've thought a lot about time too, like is being present underrated, appropriate related, over, overrated. And what is being present? Just focusing on one thing at a time, like not having multiple. Good str- question. What is being present? That's a great question. I think it's underrated, even though it is really highly rated. I still think it's underrated. I just often find if I just remember, which, which doesn't happen all the time, but I just remember to breathe, just literally just breathe. It makes whatever I'm doing so much better. Like, you know, I don't know how possible it is to consciously enter the flow state, but the, I think the more you practice something, the more that becomes available. If you're constantly thinking, Oh, I need to be present. That probably wouldn't be good. <laughs> but if you can achieve the state of being present, it's definitely better. I don't know. I don't know a lot of downsides to that other than maybe not doing planning. Although I feel like, I feel like so present when I'm thinking about future projects, like when I'm just thinking about what is this, you know, what's the shawl going to look like? What kind of lace is it going to be made of? What, what's the color progression going to be? I feel really present in that, even though it's projected into the future, but that's a, it's an interesting thing to try to sort out. I think this would take more than than a than a podcast to think about. But what are what are the different kinds of being present? Because there's that there's that flow state. There's that you know you just lose time. Sometimes I love it when I'm running. I love running. I like how it feels. But one of my favorite things is when I'm just so focused on a knitting problem that it'll be like a mile later, and I'm like, how did I get here? Like what <laughs> what just happened? Is that being present? I don't know, because I didn't see the last mile. I was feeling good. I was in nature. I was, you know, running through through the world and I was happy and I was thinking about this project. Was I present? I don't know. I kind of lost myself. Feels like yeah. 
but it feels present. I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah, the times where I feel most present, I guess my, my two of my favorite hobbies, I mean, besides podcasting, one is playing basketball, and another is actually uh, freestyle rapping. Nice, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, or, and, and really just like rhyming. And one rhyme I had, or I thought of it, was that I've been in flow state since 08. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. I, I just really like, who do, you <laughs> like? who do I like rap-wise? Oh, I mean, so many people. One of my favorites is this guy named Homeboy Sandman, who's just this really amazing rhymer. I love Chance the Rapper. It's more like it's gospel stuff, I guess. Or you, I just feel really happy when I was doing. I really like lyrics. I really, I, and I, I, not even lyrics. I really like rhymes. Um, favorite, favorite's MF Doom because I'm old, oh. but the most amazing rhymes. Yeah, yeah, MF Doom is incredible. He's, I mean, the way he can rhyme and fit so many. Like, how did you just rhyme a five-syllable word? Yeah. And and the way he plays with flow patterns and, I mean, his whole aesthetic. and I love that. I have a friend who he was managing a different rapper. And and he's, MF Doom was supposed to play the same show, but he sent his imposter. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fun. Like, I can imagine the first time they thought of that or something. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, like Andy Kaufman style. <laughs> yeah. It's really clever. I mean, yeah, he's... He's one of the best ever, I think. Um, and, and truly, truly original. Yeah. Somebody who did it. I mean, Aesop Rock is another one. I, I, have you ever listened yeah. to him? Yeah. yeah I mean, no one did it like him and no one can do it again. Um, but yeah, I, don't know, I think it's a golden age of rap. I mean, there's just so many subcultures and so many interesting yeah. Yeah. things. I'll see sometimes just really good tracks that have like a thousand listens or something. I'm just yeah. like, how? In the '90s, this would never have happened, but now there's so much good stuff out there that yeah, it, it, yeah. There's there's more good stuff than ever, and there's also more bad stuff. <laughs> or just like or stuff that doesn't inspire. Yeah, rap is interesting. Yeah, simultaneously more pop and also more like local um, subculture stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll wait for the David Chapman uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> analogy. You know, that's it for it. I was hoping you meant for the you versus David Chapman rap battle. Cause yeah, I- that'll be a good. He's coming on the podcast too, so that'll be oh. a, a natural collaboration. Two last sort of big threads for me. One, one is, I, you know, I spoke with this person about the concept of liquid democracy um, recently. It was sort of that it's, it's less about the wisdom of crowds or the knowledge of crowds and more about the sort of epistemological modesty of crowds that people don't have to know much about any policy, but they have to know that they don't know about policy <laughs> and be able to delegate to someone who does. And I was curious for your take because you seem to have thought a lot about this. Yeah, I have a take. (laughs) My take is that the experts don't exist and that delegating to someone who knows is not something that really happens. But I tend to agree with the Michael humor and praise of passivity that politically we're in the same position as medieval doctors, that we don't know anything about the system. We don't know how it works. Almost all interventions fail. When they succeed, we don't know why. Almost every political change probably makes things worse. I'm pretty libertarian, not really. I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but I'm, that's where that's definitely how I lean. Less regulations, probably better. But even there, it seems like there's we just we just know so little. So I agree with epistemic modesty, but I don't know how that works in a democracy. <laughs> like I don't know how it works in any form of governance. It seems right. like nobody really knows. Well, uh, what if we change from government to like a company or something? Uh, do you think that? Basically, and I don't know where I stand, but do you believe believe that in sort of like a wisdom of crowds versus 
you know, the people at the top know. So I guess if you said there are no experts, then maybe, maybe. I think there's experts maybe at business, okay. especially some particular business. Like I'm sure there's experts at manufacturing little plastic things. Yeah. And, and I'm not that I would definitely delegate to one of them if I was wanting to manufacture little plastic things. So I think that kind of expertise exists, but the sort of big scale policy stuff is what I'm pushing back against. I don't think that right. kind of expertise exists. So, but in, at the level of business, I think, hmm, I don't, I don't know how firms work. I think it's still a mystery. They seem to work. They seem to work for a while. New ones seem to come and do better than the old ones. And it's sort of a cycle. And yeah, but I don't, I don't really have a take on that. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that there's something of dictatorships or, or, you know, pleasant dictatorships with, with exit. Um, The groups that I've belonged to that worked really well seem to have a benevolent dictator. So I think that structure tends to work well, especially when it's someone everybody really trusts and who is a sociopath and genuinely interested in the well-being of the group. And the question is, yeah, would liquid and and Robin Hanson's done a bunch of stuff. Basically prediction markets are versions of liquid you know, or, or liquid democracy is a version of predict. predict. What is, what is the liquid? What is, what is flowing in this situation oh. from belief to belief or position? Oh, to position? You can delegate your vote. Basically. Uh, I guess, I guess uh, authority or oh. decision-making. Decision yeah. So that, that sounds pretty good, but <laughs> I, I would, I choose not to vote partly because I think I don't know anything, but so I guess you could call that delegation. <laughs> There's probably better ways to do that, but <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I'm trying to imagine how that would work in so the idea is you're kind of delegating to the prediction market to some degree. Oh, no, you you would pick somebody you you oh, think pick your, That's great. That's even better. Pick a proxy, yeah. Yeah. And the, the question I or the skepticism I had is that if you think people are clueless or don't have knowledge, what makes us think that we will that they would have knowledge that they don't have knowledge? Like yeah. What's rare, knowledge or epistemological modesty? Like people love yeah, that. Indeed. indeed. Yeah. Are there other ways worth mentioning, adding that you've thought about epistemology or or normative epistemic norms or, or rituals? Or I'm having a hard time thinking. That I know there are good examples of rituals that have clear epistemic implications and that maybe are a form of group epistemology, but I'm having a hard time thinking of my examples. I mean, an election is a ritual. <laughs> a democratic election is a, is definitely a ritual in that everybody's performing a sacrifice of time. There's no clear connection between the action and the outcome, especially in the individual level. It's somewhat of a sacred ritual. So it's something where the, where, where people think it's a very generally good thing to do to participate in the election, um, feel very strongly about the outcome. You get, you know, maybe you can take time off work to do it. So it's supported in the, the, the ritual is supported by the underlying structure of the society. I don't know if I think it might be that the outcome's good. The outcome is clearly good enough to keep the system going. So that's maybe what we could, all we can expect. I don't know if we can expect better than that. In most places at most times, it's good enough to keep the system going. And when it's not, then I don't know, you get a, a revolution or a, a coup or something. But yeah, as long as as long as the ritual keeps happening and people keep having some amount of confidence in it enough to keep participating in it uh, and accepting the results, then it keeps going on. I, don't know. <laughs> I wonder. I mean, after the last election, everybody's so mad that I don't know how they can still feel the same about the whole ritual, but people do. So 
I don't know there. Maybe the, I think some people had some had some doubt started having doubts about democracy at that time, but just just because of the outcome, that it was it was so shocking to people. But um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to think of other examples, but I think it does. There's a there's an essay that I read a long time ago that I've never been able to find again about civil procedure, basically about how the court systems work and how that is all basically, we can see it from an anthropological lens. It's all ritual. It's just doesn't really matter what the ritual is as long as people think it's fair and has some kind of fair outcome. Different countries have radically different ways of dealing with lawsuits, of dealing with even criminal cases, whether like in our system, each side has their own lawyer and they try to make the best case they can in other systems. It's just the judge tries to investigate everything and come up with the right answer. And you're not expected to necessarily have your own lawyer. And the judge is actively taking an investigative role. But whatever whatever system people come up with, if it's good enough, and and then it'll, it'll keep going until it's not good enough, until there's, there's some big enough problem with it. And I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't happened with our court system because such a small number of maybe 2% of civil and, uh, and criminal cases are actually, actually go to trial. Almost everything is just a settlement or a plea, plea bargain or something. But it works well enough that there hasn't been some kind of massive revolution. So they take, they take the court's word, basically. Or the, and, and now a lot of people are using uh, like arbitration outside of the court system. And so they're coming up with their own ritual uh, that is legally binding because that's what they put in their contract. They said, I agree to go to binding arbitration. And that's, again, good enough. So I think all of that is maybe a, the best example of an epistemological ritual that it, you know it has an outcome. It's guaranteed to have an outcome. It's fair enough. <laughs> but definitely, we know that the what more wealthy you are, the more lawyer you can afford, the more, the more justice you can afford, basically. But it's not quite so bad that we just scrap the whole system. Totally. Other th- thing that I, I thought of from, from this episode is um, one idea I've had for a while, when you asked me what I've been thinking about, is this concept called idea markets, um, which basically... I guess it's prediction markets for ideas that don't have a like outcome. Like so, how do you bet on this particular thing? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, sort of like, you know, I, example I give sometimes is like, if you were sort of early, let's just say intellectual dark web is sort of, is sort of a vague sort of general, I don't even know what it is, but it's a term that people apply. It's a term that has had some pickup. And if you were early on that term, and wanted to sort of stake, hey, I think this is going to be big. You can do that <laughs> on idea, but you could just. Or stake. they don't have like an IPO, so you can't no. bet on them that way. But you can. So you bet them in the way that people bet on cryptocurrency. It's basically <laughs> speculating, <laughs> speculate on ideas, and buy low, sell high, and <laughs> and nice. it might not even it might not even be. Uh, I mean, I'm joking about that. It might not even be financial. It might just be all like you know made up currency. But I think or it's you in- your reputation, reputation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. reputation. And uh, you get, although I, I do wonder if, if we'd also enable what happened in this conversation is, uh, well, zooming out, I think it'd be interesting just to have a sort of like um, record of what Zeitgeist is a little bit. Like, how is this thing trending? Oh, yeah. oh, I like that. Yeah. Are people like excited about this concept or not excited? I don't know. Let me check idea markets. The, the, that history throughout like the 19th century for different ideas. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's the record part of it. That's really exciting. Totally. And so, but I wonder, you know, with this, we were talking about preference falsification, if there would be a pseudonymous mode so that mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Can, like, oh, wow, this, this idea is really taking up. No one can really say it publicly, but 
right now there isn't really a way for that to happen as much i guess yeah. as the take your social capital and invest it immediately or you can't yeah <laughs> totally i like them before they were cool yeah exactly well that's what people love i think that lastly you know and no pressure if you didn't want want to chat about it, i think you've written about it or well i guess two things one is is keto mm-hmm. and two is being a lot happier because of it <laughs> and uh and I guess three not wanting or, or writing less mm-hmm. because of it yeah one thing you hear a lot from writers is like why do you write it's like because you, you have to like there's no good reason to do it it's not going to do anything good for your life it's just you have to do it and i do enjoy writing sort of like i enjoy the process of thinking about an article and then putting it on paper i hate having written things kind of like I hate as soon as I hit publish, I'm just cringing like and thinking about all the ways I was wrong and how everybody's going to know I'm an idiot now. (laughs) So I don't like that part of it. I enjoy the process overall, but it has some definite downsides for me. And yeah, so I started in February, February 18th. It's my keto birthday. It's pretty silly, but I just started. So for a long time, I'd noticed that when I would fast, I would feel really good. And at first I thought maybe this is like anorexia or something. But then I realized on the, the keto diet, I just didn't feel depressed anymore. It was, I was not expecting it. I quit smoking and I gained some weight and I just wanted to lose like 15 pounds. And that happened really fast. But before that even happened, just like my depression resolved. I was like, what? <laughs> Why did no one tell, tell me this before? So it was very similar to, it feels very similar to fasting in the, in the emotional way, but you're not fasting. You can still go on hikes and go running and stuff. and. So one of the effects was just having a totally different, like I've been, I've had severe depression my whole life and I've been on a million different, you know, maybe a dozen, two dozen different medications and seen probably a dozen psychologists, psychologists and psychiatrists and just kind of tried everything. I've had a few things that worked or worked for a while. Running is my main, my main coping strategy for, for the past 10 years or so, but but it was just, it was immediately within a few days, it was clear this was just a different way of being. For the most part, it's just a completely different way of experiencing the world. And socially, it's a lot different. I would find it kind of stressful to socialize with people. And then afterwards, I'd always be like doing social rumination where every little, analyzing every little thing I said, whether it was rude or whether I hurt somebody's feelings or whether I sounded stupid. And I just don't really do that anymore. And it, it's so weird to me that it was just a kind of chemical thing. <laughs> this pattern just stopped. So now it's pretty easy for me to just hang out with my friends a few times a week, which was never something that I could, I could handle before. Yeah. Not, not drink alcohol at all. Not feel like I had to get in a good mood or be in a, an especially good place to see people. And then just know I'd have to deal with that rumination for days afterwards I'm just totally different. So um, I wasn't expecting it. And after the fact, I learned that some other people with lifetime severe depression have had the same result from either doing keto or doing full carnivore, like just eating ribeyes and nothing else. I still eat a lot of like cheese and meat and nuts and things and avocados. But yeah, so one, one thing that happened is I think one one reason, which is probably good in some ways, that I'd feel the need to write every month is I just had this sort of obligation. After I started it, I just didn't 
feel the obligation as much. And, and I was still partly, I was just getting used to this new way of being that I didn't have much experience dealing with positive emotions or dealing with constant positive emotions. <laughs> Uh, and, and just having, it felt like being a different person, having a different life. So I don't know. It's almost unsure if I could still write. I wrote this last thing and it, so I've proven to myself I can still do it at least. But it doesn't feel like I, it like, almost like you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like it doesn't feel like that anymore. Right. So going forward, I guess I'm closing a little bit. Like, what are the questions that you're most excited to wrestle with now or, or yeah, moving forward? Like, what can you expect? Well, now I'm interested in different ways of being present, <laughs> like analyzing the, the, what's the word for that? The qualia of being present and the different forms of that. That's interesting. As dumb as it sounds, I'm just really interested in wool right now. <laughs> Usually when I focus on something like that, there's always analogies that come out of it that relate to other things, but I don't know, just, yeah, I recently learned about mixing colors for painting um, and you can make almost any color from just a few colors. So you just have like four or five colors on your palette and you can mix almost anything to match anything in the world. But I realized that you can do that with wool too, that you can just have a few colors of wool and then blend them together to make any color. And so that's what I've been, that's what I've been doing lately, kind of cross, cross discipline. Usually, usually it seems like the more generic ideas come out of some specific thing, but it's, it's hard to just have a, have an idea. It's more like a, push my face into the world and then sometimes ideas come out. <laughs> right. And maybe to close, we can uh, zoom out a little bit. You know, we, we've been doing a little bit of inside baseball in terms of, you know, ribbon farm blog, you know, Kevin Sumler ran, ran uh, melting asphalt blog. We're talking about David Chapman runs meaningness.com blog. Maybe give a little bit of high level of like how you see sort of ribbon farms, like place in the internet or place in the blogosphere or, or anything else you want to end to help give listeners a little bit more context for what I is- feel like the core of Ribbon Farm is Venkat's honesty and using that word again in my same word. <laughs> there's this just really honest perspective. It's not just him. It's a lot of us. But it's never going to be something that's clickbaity. It's never going to be something that's probably that, uh, that millions of people are going to read. It's something that is just kind of a craft thing, kind of a, a personal, I don't know, it seems pure and authentic to me. Um, what is the place? I don't know. I think that, I think that's changed over the past, what, 15 years at least, maybe more than that. I don't know exactly how much, but I think it'll probably continue to change. Um, I think the core of Ribbon Farm is, is interestingness, interesting ideas. There are themes that kind of come and go, but that's, that seems like the core to me. There's, I don't think there's a topic or a subject. That's never how I thought of it. Uh, it's more, Venkat hates the word community and I wouldn't use that word. He likes the word airport. <laughs> well, why does he hate the word community? Because it has this. Because it's kind of fake and it's not really a community. It's very, so I guess maybe the, the precise way to say was that it doesn't have the same demand of sacrifice that other, that a real community might have. It doesn't have the same ongoing interaction and being in each other's business all day, every day or something that, that a community might have, but. And yet people do feel a connection. They feel a connection to other people through sharing the same ideas and through working through the same questions. So, yeah, I think, I think Ruben Farm is more about questions than topics. Yeah. No, it's pretty, it's pretty vague, honestly, <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. I like airport. I think, I think that's cool. Cool. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank on. you. Thank you for letting me talk about myself. <laughs> uh, this was a really, really lovely uh, conversation. Good to talk to you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 